1: meditation as being the heart of the path of awakening and in many ways it is it's through the cultivation of mindfulness and concentration and equanimity and all the qualities that we've been cultivating that makes possible the wisdom that actually liberates the mind it's important to remember that the Buddha's teaching Of liberation, of enlightenment, of awakening, is much more inclusive of life experience than just sitting in a meditation hall. You know, our life is our practice. And we really see this unmistakably when we consider and uh, investigate the Noble Eightfold Path. Having established ourselves here, to some extent, in right understanding, an understanding of the three characteristics, an understanding that attachment causes suffering, and having established ourselves, at least somewhat, in the second step of right thought, that is, seeing the value of thoughts of renunciation, of non-greed, of loving-kindness, of non-hatred, of compassion, of non-cruelty. The Buddha then lays out the next three steps in how we can apply these understandings and how we can apply our wisdom in the world. So the next three steps on the path are actually about how we live our lives. And that is how we live our lives in our speech, in our action, and in our livelihood. So as we reflect on our own commitment at whatever level it is to freeing the mind, to freedom, to awakening, we might notice a tendency to relegate these aspects of the path, of speech, of action, of livelihood, to a somewhat secondary role, you know, as if the real work is here. You know, sitting on a cushion or walking meditation. But if we hold it in this way, we are really fragmenting our lives and weakening essential elements of the path. You know, when you think of the Buddha in his first discourse after his enlightenment, when he laid out the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, he didn't actually say, "Yeah, oh, there's right view, wise understanding, wise thought," and then if you have time, you know, work with speech and action and livelihood. No, I mean it's it's a path of practice that includes all of it, and it's interesting. Of, of there's one list where the Buddha lays out ten unwholesome actions to avoid, like not killing and not stealing. There are ten. Seven of the ten are purified by these next three steps on the path of right speech, action, and livelihood. So, this is not some kind of insignificant addendum to our practice. And in some ways, it's the very heart of our practice as we live our lives in the world. So, Bhikkhu Bodhi, in, with his usual clarity of expression, He expressed this really well. So he's talking about these three steps on the path. He said, though the principles laid down in this section restrain unskillful actions and produce good conduct, their ultimate purpose is not so much ethical as spiritual. They are not prescribed merely as guides to action but primarily as aids to mental purification. And so This is important it's to see that how we're living in the world. Of course, ethics are important, but the depth of these steps have to do with the furtherance of the purification of our minds. They go much deeper. As a necessary measure for human well-being, ethics has its own justification in the Buddha's teachings, and its importance cannot be underrated. But in the special context of the Noble Eightfold Path, ethical principles are subordinate to the path's governing goal, final deliverance from suffering. So I hope you get a sense that these steps which involve ethical conduct have a much deeper and more profound context. And that's why they are steps of the Eightfold Path to freedom. So the first of these triad of path factors is right speech, and this is the one I'd like to talk about this evening. Speech is this incredibly powerful force in our lives, and it is so precisely because we speak a lot. In our lives, in the world, we are just, most of the time, and most of us are just speaking all day long. But how often are we really paying attention to this as part of our practice? You know, the speech we use conditions our relationships, it conditions our own hearts and minds, it conditions karmic results, karmic consequences in the future. So the most basic aspect of right speech is truthfulness, not saying that which isn't true. So although this may seem exceedingly obvious and straightforward, it may not be as easy to practice impeccably as we assume it to be. Now, there are many kinds of false speech from perhaps slight exaggerations or humorous untruths, or falsehoods that may be motivated by some desire for self-protection in some way, that we feel we have to say something untrue, or the protection of others. We feel that somehow we're lying to protect other people. Sometimes there are deliberate lies you know, really with an intention to harm, to cause divisiveness. Of course, we see this illuminated in any election year. (laughs) (laughs) You know, where people, both both candidates and commentators and partisan voices, are just saying all kinds of things. And you know, you're probably familiar with that. There's, there's some kind of, I don't know there's a program or one particular fact check, you know, where there's, there's somebody fortunately just watching. And it is amazing how much of what is said in that context is just blatantly untrue. It doesn't seem to stop it, but at least it's good to be cognizant of it. So, in any, in any situation on any level, it would be really interesting and important to look at what the motivation is when we say something that is not exactly true. Is it greed for something? Is it a desire for recognition? Maybe some kind of self-aggrandizement? Is it out of a fear of rejection that we don't say what is true? Or jealousy or envy? It could be so many different motivations. And telling untruths, as we all know, it becomes very complicated. Because then we have to tell other lies to support the first lie. And then we have to remember it all. And Mark Twain just captured the... Problematic nature of all this," he said. "If you tell the truth, you don't have to remember anything. <laughs> so our lives, our minds, our hearts become that much simpler. You know, we're not we're not holding up this construct. And you know, as we all know, probably from our own experience, lying." is a great corrosive force in our relationships you know, and, and in society because it undermines, it weakens our ability to trust. And the, the German philosopher Nietzsche said, I'm not upset that you lied to me. I'm upset that from now on I can't believe you you know and we may have had experiences with people we know or friends or associates you know when we've been lied to and you know you know how how it just undermines the ability to trust you can can no longer believe that person when they say something so the buddha spoke of the importance of truthfulness in a very blunt way he was not mincing words about this he said, Thus one should never knowingly speak a lie, either for the sake of one's own advantage, or for the sake of another person's advantage, or for the sake of any advantage whatsoever. So I find that just, just the clarity of that teaching, because there are so many ways we can rationalize telling an untruth, and we kind of justify it. Oh, well, it's important in this. Situation. And the Buddha is saying, no, the the commitment to the truth should be impeccable. And in the Bodhisattva's long journey to Buddhahood, you know, and these are the stories of all his many past lives as he's cultivating the qualities of Buddha, it's said that he broke all of the precepts at one time or another. You know, he was a being like us with. Of, you know, all the flaws and problems. And so he broke a lot of the precepts on his path to Buddhahood. But it said that the one precept he never broke, that from the time he was committed to this path of awakening, it said that he never said that which was untrue. Now, so central is truthfulness to the path of awakening. So we can reflect on this. We can reflect on this standard really as an inspiration for our own commitment to truthfulness in our lives. But what seems so simple can be surprisingly difficult. What could be simpler than, yeah, we just say what's true and we don't say what's untrue? I mean, it seems obvious. Sometimes I imagine the Buddha as a uh, second-grade teacher teaching us, don't lie, (laughs) don't steal, (laughs) just saying the most obvious things. And yet, it's very interesting just to take a really uh, refined look at one's own speech and actions. Sometimes lies just seem to tumble out before before we're even quite aware. There was At the end of the three-month course, uh, every year at IMS, uh, we meet in groups and, you know, chance for people to integrate a little bit. And one of the groups, it was around speech, one of the yogis was commenting on a pattern that he noticed in himself. So he said, you know, as I was getting together with my friends and talking about our practice and... Some of the conversation, you know, was, you know, well, how, how, how long did you sit for? How long did you sit for? And he said he noticed you always added 15 minutes. <laughs> it's just a little thing, but it's not true. You know, it was just kind of to present himself in a slightly better way. One story which I've told very many times, but it is a classic. <laughs> So at the end of one of the three-month retreats at IMS, there were these big walk-in refrigerators, you know, in freezer. So one day a staff person was going into this big walk-in to get something, and they saw a yogi in the refrigerator with his hand in a box of dates. (laughs) So the staff person very politely said, can I help you? And the guy just, just, without thinking at all. Oh, I'm looking for the maintenance person. <laughs> in a box of dates. <laughs> it is amazing. And I think it's interesting just to watch in ourselves, you know, in these, it's a basically harmless situation, but still we can see just just the habit of you know, justifying ourselves or protecting ourselves or whatever, and an untruth comes out. Sometimes there are lies of omission, covering or withholding something of importance. Perhaps some of you are familiar with the poet Adrienne Rich. She wrote, lying is done with words and also with silence. So this is another nuance of right speech, of truthfulness, that is worth looking at. And I had an experience of this, it goes back 50 years, and it's still completely vivid in my mind. I had finished my time in the Peace Corps and I was traveling back to the States, I had on the way home, I'd been stationed in Bangkok. So I stopped in India and Nepal, you know, just traveling back home. And in Nepal, there's a day hike up to a place called Nagarkod, uh, from which you can see Mount Everest. So it's, it's kind of a popular one day hike. Uh, and there, there was a shelter there on top. And people s- often would stay overnight and there's this uh, very basic shelter. So I'd hiked up there and it was a glorious view of Mount Everest. And then there was this room, like a dorm room with, I don't know, 10, 12 beds. And the beds all had uh, two blankets on them. And so we're going to sleep. And then after the lights were out, somebody comes in late. And on their bed, there was only one blanket. And then I noticed that on my bed there were three. It was really cold. (laughs) (laughs) And I just, you know, in looking back now, kind of this rational, well, I didn't ask for it. You know, it just happens to be on my bed. So I didn't say anything, you know and then once i started getting into the practice so and i was just going on with my trip and you know I think at the time i didn't think much more about it but it came to my mind you know as i started to meditate and just kind of the blatant greed you know and selfishness a lying lie of omission right so we want to as as we open up you know and become more sensitive uh, in our lives, just to be aware uh, when that kind of situation may arise. We might also be under the illusion that we would never lie in whatever form it might take. So if we are living with that belief, It's possible that the belief actually makes it harder for us to see when we do, because we just have this self-image. Oh, I don't lie. I would never lie. Well, I had another. This this, tonight's kind of confessional. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) all the wrong speech confessions. (laughs) But they all highlight a particular situation that can come up. I had one really powerful, painful. But ultimately, freeing experience with seeing what my mind could do. So, this was the first course with Saira Upandita. This was in 1984, a very intensive course. You know, we were just sleeping four hours a night, practicing very rigorously. He's a very demanding teacher. So, it was, it was stressful, it was, it was not easeful. Um, And I had some idea of where my practice was at. You know, I'd already been practicing and teaching for some time. And I thought I had a pretty good understanding of the map, of how things unfold. So I had this notion of where my practice was at. So in the interview, I was just kind of slanting the report according to this view that I had of where my practice was at. So, in one particular interview, I go in and I'm reporting on my experience, you know, with this this little slant. And after the report, he just said one thing to me. He said, That's not true. Even now, my heart starts to. (laughs) (laughs) I was devastated because it was true what he said. So I mean, here, here, you know, I am in this completely vulnerable situation to begin with, with a teacher I had this tremendous respect for, and I had, no, I was not very conscious. I was a little bit conscious. I kind of knew what I was doing, but really wasn't seeing the implication of. It. So when he said that isn't true, it took me days to recover. I was I was so upset, and so working over days. You know, I was working with feelings of shame and self judgment and guilt and all of it. But it actually came to a place of greater freedom, because I came to see when I worked through kind of all you know the terrible feelings and the reactivity, the self judgment. I came to the place of seeing my mind more clearly and realized, yeah, my mind can do that. You know, I had been under the, no, 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 I would never shade the truth, especially with my teacher. And But I said, no, no, the mind, <laughs> the, the mind can do that and worse. So when I let go of that, previously unnoticed pretense and delusion, it became much easier than to recognize even those little impulses in the mind to fabricate in some way. Do you follow? Because I, I, I reckon, yeah, the mind can do this. And I got freer and less self-judgmental about it, having gone through that terrible experience. So then it was it was much easier to see as these impulses were, oh yeah, this is the mind, you know, wanting to do that. And it became much easier then to see it and actually to refrain from that kind of speech. So it's often in the most painful situations and experience that we actually learn the most. You know, we really see where we've been caught in some way and the possibility of not getting caught. Sometimes it takes tremendous courage to practice speaking only what is true. So one inspiring example of this for me was reading a book called Life and Death in Shanghai. I don't know that any of you read it, it's quite a few years old now, by a Chinese woman, Yan Chang. She lived in China with her husband. Her husband had been sort of a big executive in one of the multinationals that had been in China. But during the Cultural Revolution, uh, I can't remember now whether the husband was killed or something, but... Um, Everything was taken from them. She was put in prison for years and then tortured in a, hor- a horrible situation. And they wanted her con- to confess to being in some kind of conspiracy with the then premier of China, Chowen Lai. I don't know how many of you remember Chinese history. Anyway, he was a, he was a very important person, but the, the cultural revolution faction wanted to bring this person down. So they wanted her to confess. And the the book is the story of her being in prison under these terrible conditions and being unwilling to tell a lie. And they were were really tormenting her. But she was so committed to truthfulness. And after a certain number of years, they let her out and she ended up living in uh, D.C. But to, to read her account, you know, of just the integrity of even in situations that are horrible to be so committed to the truth. And who knows what the consequences would have been in China and for the rest of the world? That could have been a pivotal shift in, in one way or another. So sometimes it really does require a tremendous of courage, it's commitment to the truth. You know, in one of the meanings of the word, the term Dharma, that's Sanskrit dharma in Pali, one of the meanings of that word is truth. And our whole goal in practice, everything we're doing, is about seeing what is true. That's what practicing the Dharma means. So again, from Bhikkhu Bodhi, it makes it. it says, truthful speech establishes a correspondence between our inner being and the real nature of phenomena. Thus, much more than an ethical principle, devotion to truthful speech is a matter of taking our stand on reality rather than illusion. Oh, I love that. I mean, what what a clear statement of what a commitment to truthfulness means. It's taking a stand on reality rather than on illusion. The Buddha uh, emphasized the overriding importance of this, and this is why I'm going on at a little bit of length about this. The Buddha emphasized this so strongly in, in one conversation with his son Rahula. Who was then a novice, a novice monk. The Buddha pointed to a bowl with just a little bit of water at the bottom, and he said to his son, So little is the spiritual achievement of one who is not afraid to tell a deliberate lie. Therefore, one should not tell a deliberate lie even in jest. So this is this is that's a strong statement, you know. So little is the spiritual achievement of one who is not afraid to tell a deliberate lie. So we want to really watch, you know, and make this an essential arena of our practice. But what's important as we hear this is to recognize that it is a practice and it's a powerful one to undertake and to realize we may not yet be perfect in this. You know, there may may be many times when the words come tumbling out, oh, I'm looking for the maintenance person or whatever the lie may be, little uh, slanting of your meditation report But if we have established taking us taking a stand on our commitment to being truthful, even though we realise it's a practice, we realise there may be many times we fall, you know, from that standard, still just having made the commitment, it helps to sensitize ourselves in our own speech to even small falsehoods and i I've, I've seen this in myself since i've begun really consciously trying to work with this you know i can see perhaps an impulse to say something that's not quite true and because of the commitment oh yeah it's you know a little it's like a little mindfulness bell goes off and say, oh no this isn't true i don't need to say this so just the commitment having made the commitment begins to transform our lives And how we use speech. Okay, so the second aspect of right speech, the first and the critical importance, is truthfulness. The second aspect of right speech is refraining from slandering, gossip, backbiting, you know, those words that cause disharmony uh, and loss of friends. So again, Buddha's words very clear. He said, what one has heard here is not repeated there so as to cause dissension. What one has heard there is not repeated here so as not to cause dissension here. One unites those who are divided and encourages those who are already united. One delights and rejoices in concord and it is concord that one spreads by one's words. So this would be a very helpful frame to consider before we speak. You know, i kind of especially given the strong worldwide tendency to gossip. And this is just, it's this is just such a common pattern of speech. This is kind of what we do. You know, we get together with our friends it's all over the world, People, this is what people do. But it might be interesting to ask the question as we're in the middle of some really juicy, just to ask first to notice that this is what's happening and then to really ask us, well, what's, what's the enjoyment of this? What, what am I getting out of this? When we're gossiping about others, does it in some way reaffirm our our own sense of self? You know, is there some ego gratification? So now I'll tell you a successful speech story. This goes back again many many years. Just when the meditation it was just beginning in this country, you know, it was, it was beginning to to spread. So this. Perhaps in the late 70s. And there's a, quite a famous writer who wanted to do a book on this, you know, the spiritual, the burgeoning spiritual scene in America, Buddhism, and, you know, other meditative traditions. So he came, he wanted to interview me. So he came to my house and very skilled interview. And he's written many books, uh, very skilled. And so we're engaging in a really interesting conversation. And in the course of the conversation, he starts asking me just, you know, what I think about this teacher and that teacher. And of course, I had my two cents about everybody, <laughs> you know, my views and opinions and judgments and whatever. And I was just about it because, yeah, this this would be good. <laughs> but fortunately, you know, so he asked the question and psh- a mindfulness bell. This is not a good idea. <laughs> you know, and so I, I refrain. I just didn't, I didn't need to go into that arena of the conversation. I was so happy at that decision when the book came out, and everything that was in our conversation was in the book. And if I had just spilled out all my opinions and judgments, and it all would have been in the book, and I really, it would not have been good. <laughs> <laughs> so I just, uh, I just appreciate the power and the gift of mindfulness. You know, if we can really be watching, monitoring. So when I first, my first introduction to Buddhism, when I was in the Peace Corps in Thailand, just had finished college and um, off to teach. I was teaching English in Bangkok was my first introduction to Buddhism. I was really quite excited by it all and, and a tremendous interest. And I was reading about the Eightfold Path and you know, right conduct, uh, and had no background at all in this. So it was all kind of new and fresh and exciting. And I read, you know little uh, pieces about right speech. So I made an experiment, and for some period of time and it was extended. And I can't remember exactly, but maybe a couple of months. I decided not to speak to someone about someone else. So, no, there's not gossip. You know, I, if they weren't there, I wasn't going to speak about them. About 90% of my speech was eliminated. <laughs> it was astounding to see how much of what I was saying was that kind of speech. And it wasn't it wasn't that it was particularly malicious or anything like that, but it was just it was just gossip. You know. So even so, just, you might want to make a little experiment. There were times when it got a little awkward, because if somebody else was speaking to me about a third person, I had to devise all kind of little strategies for. Not engaging, you know, like smiling, (laughs) changing the topic. So it took, at times it took a little, (laughs) but it was a very interesting thing to do. And nowadays, you know, when so many people are aware of, you know, this or similar paths of practice, we could even say, oh no, I'm practicing, I'm practicing these, this kind of wise speech. You know, it would be much more understandable now. But even if we loosen the parameters a little bit, you know, and we say, "Okay, we may be speaking about a third person, but we're going to really watch what we say. Is it to divide, or is it to unite?" So just that—that that would be that would be a great frame, and then to watch our motivation. You know, if the intention is kind of to to divide people, what's behind that? What's motivating us? Or is the motivation really to help people who may be divided to help bring them together? That would be a much more skillful use of our speech. On another level, our speech may be a kind of gossip about ourselves. And this is another interesting pattern to observe. It's a form of what in Pali is called mana, M A N A, and that's translated usually as conceit. But it's a defilement of the mind, it's basically that sense of I am. It's the I am sense. And it's not uprooted till one is an arhant. So this particular Tendency goes very, very deep. It has deep roots in the mind. Even when we understand the selfless nature of it all, the habit pattern of I am, of mana, is still there. So when we're speaking, we might look is our tendency to always be self referential? You know, to be over and over again, bringing the conversation back to ourselves. That's kind of a gossip about ourselves. You know, it's a form of mana. Or we might have the opposite conditioning. Rather than taking center stage, we may be obsessively staying behind the scenes, never giving voice, you know, to our views, to our opinions, to our thoughts. Speech is such a powerful mirror of our minds. When we're paying attention to our speech and what kind of speech, it is like reflecting back, if we're paying attention, it is reflecting back to us what's going on in our minds. And so we can learn a tremendous amount. Just to to give you a sense of the force of mana you know, this this kind of I am sense and how it is expressed in speech. I was in New York with a friend, we were driving back to Massachusetts where I live. And on the drive back, we were just talking and then the thought came to say something. It was just self-referential, but without any purpose whatsoever. It was it was out of context of the conversation, and it was just me. <laughs> okay, so I saw this, you know, I saw this impulse to say it come up in my mind. No, that's just mana. I, have, I don't have the to say this, so I let it go. About ten seconds later, <laughs> the thought comes again. Watch it; it's sort of like that cup of tea, you know. So I, I watched it. Do yeah, ten times, fifteen times, twenty times? <laughs> then it came out, <laughs> and it was, and I was uh, at this time. I was really amused. I was just watching my mind, and it amused me just how strong it was. Like it was like being pregnant with mana, <laughs> you know, and just had to give birth. <laughs> So these patterns will be there. You know, we're not yet fully enlightened. These old habit patterns are going to ex- express themselves. But can we begin to watch? Can we begin to see what's going on? And maybe at times, refrain. So the third aspect of wise why, right, why speech, right speech, has to do with the emotional tone in our hearts and minds. And the Buddha talked, in this way, of refraining from harsh, angry, and abusive speech. So these are the Buddha's words. One speaks such words as are gentle, soothing to the ear, loving. Such words as go to the heart, are courteous, friendly, and agreeable to many. So this, this really is how we're speaking. What's, what's the tone? What's the feeling behind it? There's a very simple reference point for monitoring this. And I I think this just serves us in so many different situations. And it's basically, are we being kind? In our speech, are we speaking kindly or not? And the Dalai Lama, he stressed this when he said, be kind whenever possible. It's always possible. So to remember that, you know, and can we be present enough? Can we be mindful enough in our speech so that when something's coming out that's not kind, you know, that is harsh or angry or judgmental or whatever it may be, maybe we won't catch it till after some of the words are already out. But with practice, maybe we can begin to see the intent beforehand and remind ourselves can I be kind in this situation. It's really important to be aware of the energy behind our words because how do we feel when we are on the receiving end of angry energy? You know it it doesn't feel good. And what do we, most of us do? Very often we put up some defense because it's kind of a violent energy coming at us. You know. So we get defensive and probably feel hurt. And then maybe anger arises in ourselves as you know, a possible response. This is not a good environment for communication. And really in the end, that's what wise speech is all about. Can we connect? Can we have connection? So the the interest here is not to suppress the feelings maybe of anger or irritation or annoyance. So we want to be cognizant of what we're feeling but as Kamala was you know she spoke of so beautifully last night can we see what's arising create some space and maybe wait a bit until we can say what needs to be said from a kindly place. This is a practice. This practice is as hard as anything you've done here in these last days. It's not an inferior (laughs) kind of practice because the patterns of our speech go so deep. We're tremendously habituated. So we need to be really mindful. So now I'm going to offer some teaching of the Buddha that is... Tremendously challenging, this really raises the bar. Because right speech also has implications for how we listen. And the Buddha outlined a practice for listening that will be very challenging. Okay, ready? Bhikkhus, that's us. This, in this of, it's everybody walking on the path. There are five courses of speech that others may use when they address you. Right, so, this is listening. This is speech coming to us. Their speech may be timely or untimely, true or untrue, gentle or harsh, connected with good connected with harm, spoken with a mind of loving-kindness or with a mind of inner hate. Herein you should train yourself thus. Our minds will remain unaffected. We shall utter no unskillful words. We shall abide compassionate for their welfare with a mind of loving-kindness. Okay, so picture the scene, you're speaking with somebody and they're speaking at completely the wrong time, speaking very harshly, lying, Mm -hmm. just saying what's untrue, wanting to harm you, filled with hate. our minds will remain unaffected. We shall utter no unskillful words. We should abide compassionate for their welfare with a mind of loving kindness. That's a pretty high bar, but I love that because it's just a reminder of the direction of our practice. We may not be there and we probably aren't there quite yet, But there are very few people in the world that would even hold that as a value. You know, would say, oh yeah, this is is really challenging and hard, but it's something to aspire to. And so when we're in those difficult conversations, maybe some of these words will come back to you and you'll remember. Because when somebody is speaking in that kind of really unskillful way, I mean, usually we're just reacting, reactive to their behavior. If there's some presence of mind, it actually becomes possible to drop down a level and see the suffering in them that is the cause of that behavior. People at peace do not speak like that. It's coming out of their own suffering. But normally we don't go to that level. You know, we're just reacting to the behavior. So this is just a reminder. there's another dimension, you know as we relate to people, as we speak with people, as other spe- people speak with us. Do you see why this is this whole domain is as profound as anything that happens here? you know, sitting on the cushion. Okay, the last aspect of right speech is refraining from useless talk. And the Pali word for this is an example of onomatopoeia, you know, where the word sounds like what it is. So the Pali word for useless talk is sampapalapa. (laughs) And Sad to say, we some pop a lop a lot. <laughs> a lot of our speech is really useless. And we see this very often in just social situations. I see it you know, just hanging out with friends and yeah, you know, kinda of informal, just hanging out, chatting away. how often I see in myself the impulse just to add something to the conversation that is totally useless. It has no point at all. The only point, perhaps, is to announce, here I am. (laughs) But the words themselves have no meaning. (laughs) There is nothing meaningful being said at all. And it's very it's enervating, very you know. it's really an energy drain. So one of my favorite practices in these kinds of situations is just, just our daily life, ordinary interactions with people. And it happens a lot with friends, you know, where we're just kind of relaxing. I love it in those moments when I can see a little some papalapa about to pop out, and I'm aware of it, and I, no, I don't need to say this. It feels so, I feel victorious. <laughs> it's like one of life's little victories over Mara. You know, there's no, I don't need to do that. And it's amazing how energizing that is. It just, yeah, I'm just back in myself. Sometimes some Papalapa has. Really bad consequences. So there's one story which illustrates this, but it needs a a historical setting because it was before 9/11. After 9/11, it would have been a whole different ballgame. So before 9/11, this friend from New York uh, was going on a vacation in Bali. You know, he made a lot of plans for it and. So he goes out to the airport, gets on the plane it, and he had injured his hand. So he had, you know, like exercise balls, and he was just exercising his hand. So the flight attendant comes by and says, oh, what's that? And just without thinking and trying to be funny, plastique, you know, which is detonating, you know, an explosive. So he was just trying to be funny, I guess, within two minutes. They had the police on the plane. They escorted him off. They detained him. It was a huge thing till he convinced them. He actually was a psychiatrist. <laughs> yeah, I'm okay. <laughs> the airline, I didn't figure out which airline, it the airline banned him for life. <laughs> so finally, I mean, a couple of days later. Uh, he finally managed, you know, he got on another flight and went. Of course, now, he'd probably be in jail. So, he's in Bali, about to come back. He's sitting in the airport, and sitting next to somebody, and he's just kind of talking and joking away, and he says, hey, you know, you're sitting next to a terrorist? <laughs> 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 Fortunately, I mean, again, there was pre, you know free terrorist days as we know it now so nothing happened from that but even after he'd been through <laughs> you know it's like that tendency is just so strong we just the words pop out it's completely useless so a very good question which we can begin to incorporate into our lives you know in this kind of verbal communication before we speak at least at times is just to ask ourselves is this useful is it useful to say this and we'll find i think much to our surprise that very often it's not and we can just stay at ease our mind become our hearts become more peaceful So the Buddha expressed it this way, he said, One speaks at the right time, in accordance with facts, speaks what is useful, speaks of the Dharma. Such a person's speech is like a treasure, uttered at the right moment, accompanied by reason, moderate and full of sense. So, as we hear that, just to give ourselves a little more, a little bigger playground, the Buddha here is speaking to monastics, so he's creating quite, quite a refined standard of speech, which would be worth, you know, practicing. But Bhikkhu Bodhi, when he was writing about right speech in his book on the Eightfold Path, he kind of expanded the parameters a little bit, and probably as lay people. We could just give ourselves a little more leeway. You know, as Bhikkhu Bodhi said, acknowledging that we have some need for affectionate small talk, you know, with family and friends, or just polite conversation, you know, with people we meet or talk with connection at work. So we can we don't have to we don't have to get tight behind this. We can engage in kind of normal social convention, but with a much greater awareness than we might have now with regard to speech. And particularly with truthfulness, with some papalapa, with harsh speech, you know, with gossip that causes division, with those kinds of really harmful speech, we can learn just to let it go, even as we see the patterns arise. So it's not by accident that the Buddha made right speech, just an essential element on the path. This is an arena of practice and a profound arena. And it's a way of cultivating a mindfulness throughout our day, throughout our ordinary daily lives, because we are speaking a lot. When we pay attention in this way, we are weakening the unwholesome states of mind. We are strengthening the beautiful qualities of mindfulness, of compassion, of caring, of kindness. And most importantly, our attention to our speech, it aligns us with what is true. And so our whole lives become a trajectory of Dharma practice. So I'd just like to close with a teaching from a Tibetan master, Zigar Kongchul. He said, the potential for realization is universal and present for all of us. True benefit will come from your own efforts and realization. For your efforts to bring benefit, you must take your life into your own hands and examine your mind and experience. From this point of view, nobody could be kinder to you than yourself. Nobody could have a greater effect on you or actually do more for you than yourself. The Buddha said, I have shown you the path of liberation. Now liberation depends on you. This is really true. If you don't take your life into your own hands, not even the Buddhas can make a difference. It's up to you. And it is up to all of us. We need to do the work. The path is there and the path is clear. And so it's just inspiring ourselves to continue walking.
0: It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash insighthour today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp hlash insight hour.